Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is actor, author, and professor Armin Shimmerman, best known for playing Quark in the TV series Deep Space Nine. Armin's a professor of William Shakespeare's life and works and shares amazing stories that will flip your Elizabethan wig. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. Well, that means I must be Phil Proctor. How are you? How am I? Yeah, you look uh, just lovely. Well, thank you. Yes, I've gained weight and lost it. Mm-hmm. You really fill out a bathing suit now. I'm wearing a bathing yeah. suit now. Why? Because we are at the lovely home of Armin Shimmerman and Kitty Swinks over in the Wally somewhere. And I'm looking at a beautiful swimming pool because we're doing this recording yep. under a gorgeous gazebo. Yep. And that means that sitting across from me is Armin Shimmerman. That must be me, I guess. Yes, absolutely. We're in the beautiful backyard of Armin's house. We were in bunkers for so long, doing the show from bunkers remotely. So now we've decided to just invite ourselves to our guests' homes. Well, thank you. It's very nice of you to come, though I lost that on my travel pay. So, um, Armin, you're an actor, you are a uh, teacher, you're an author, and... I was a union activist. Uh, yeah. I was a I was a journalist at one time. I was a caddy at one time. Oh, you were. That's I... where I got these shoulders. Was from <laughs> ca- carrying two bags at the same time. Wow. Carrying two bags was always very good money. Very yeah. Because and you got a lot of walking in because yeah. you had to go from one person to the other and back and forth and keep your eye on both those balls. But it was a lovely job. Um, and then years ago. I got the opportunity to play a caddy again, this time on Seinfeld. Uh, but none of my experience came into play for that, so it's okay. And you're perhaps best known for your longtime role on the Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine. As Snark. As Quark. As, oh, well, Snark. Snark is what my fellow actors called me, yeah. <laughs> Did they? Because you were kind of a, snark, a snarky Quark. I was a snarky Quark. <laughs> I was very lucky uh, to play Quark. I, I um, When I heard that the new Star Trek series that was about to be produced, Deep Space Nine, and I heard that there was a Ferengi on, and I had played Ferengi on on the previous Star Trek series, Next Generation, and I thought, well, they must be looking for somebody like me. Um, They're looking for an Armin Sherman type. type. A A Ferengi type. A Ferengi type. Get me a young Ferengi. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, at that time, I wasn't so young. I was 40. Um, But I auditioned and was very happy and lucky to, to get hired. I'm uh, very proud to say that on that show, I was the first actor hired for for the show. That uh, there were seven series regulars uh, in that first season, and uh, of the seven, I was the first one hired because because they had seen me play a Ferengi before. Wonderful. For people who don't know, what is a Ferengi? What is a Ferengi? Um, a Ferengi, what is a Ferengi? <laughs> you know, I've never been asked that question, Ted. That's amazing. Um, what is a Ferengi? A Ferengi is an alien creature from uh, the planet Ferenginar, and uh, they are acquisitive beings. They like to accumulate things, and they like to trade back and forth. Originally, when I first played them in Next Generation, they were described to me as uh, clipper captains, American clipper captains huh. from the 1800s, huh. um, from New England, uh, very hard-nosed sort of people uh, but unfortunately they hired me for that first episode <laughs> and they became over- overnight sort of comical characters yeah 
Very funny. Yes. The scene where your character was lodging a complaint about living underneath your superior officer. Uh. And making noises because he was shape shifting all night, and it was bothering you. And and you, <laughs> and your character says at one point, I could even hear the mouse when he scampers like a mouse. And this commander woman character says, You could hear that. And you point to your ears and say, Hello. <laughs> yes. It's very funny. The irony of ironies is uh, all the actors who played Ferengi had large prosthetic ears. Yeah. But because we had large prosthetic ears, which were made of rubber. We couldn't, couldn't hear. hear. <laughs> we, because it was like wearing, you know, big uh, earplugs. Uh, right. Did you take liberty with the character and make it more comedic? I did originally. It, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I actually was trying to be dramatic in Next Generation, and it came out very comical. Well, that's what they say, though, Armin. If you're going to play comedy, you got to play it straight. Absolutely, Phil. And when I auditioned for Quark on Deep Space Nine, uh, my good friend, he wasn't my good friend then, but later on became a very close friend. He was my brother on the show. His name is Max Gradenchik. We both auditioned for the character of Quark, and we sat down on the, f on the steps of Paramount, and we discussed our auditions. This is before either one of us had the role. And I said, uh, Max, how did you approach this role? And he said, as you said, Phil, uh, he said, Com comedically, because it's their comic characters. And he said, how did you approach it? And I said, following your advice, Phil, um, I said, no, I, I, I approached it dramatically, that I, I wanted to make it as dramatic as possible, even though they're comedic characters. And I suppose the producers, the powers that be, agreed with you, Phil. They took the dramatic approach over the comedic approach, although Max would have made a great a quark. As well. that, yes, uh, I, I think the, the secret of that, from an actor's perspective, is that the audience gets to be funny. The audience gets to have the fun. You know, because they feel superior to you in a certain way. What a jerk! <laughs> but you're taking it very seriously, which makes you a jerk. Yes. But but you must not ever think that you're a jerk. You simply want what you want. That's right. So as Deep Space Nine took the the concept and made it a little broader, I mean, it just there seemed to be more humanity in in, in these aliens. Yeah, I, the, I think one of the glories of our show of Deep Space Nine was it wasn't about boldly going to some planet and solving their problems in 47 minutes. But rather, it was about a long extended view into, how, into relationships. How do people who don't necessarily like each other live with each other? How do we live together in, in a society that is uh, partisan? How, is, how do we live together in a society that um, uh, is abrasive mm -hmm. against each other? And, and our show tried not to show you how to do that. Absolutely not. We did not do that. But, but but we explored the problems and the successes of that situation. And people could identify with that. I think so. I, I, and I'm very prejudiced about this, but I think that's why our show has stood up so well to the test of time, because we weren't about technical things so much. We were, of course, but, but not really. We were about relationships, and, you, and relationships are universal. And there was one monologue that was sort of a morality play. You weren't playing for laughs. Yes. In the scene, you were talking about uh, false equivalency. It was like, you, you think you're superior to us? We may do this, we may do that. We always may be looking for a deal, but we're not killing each other. Yes, I remember that monologue. That was one of my favorite monologues, actually. I believe I was saying that to Captain Sisko. Yes. Um, from the very beginning in, of, of Star Trek, the character of Spock, everyone knows Spock, 
he had the ability to look at humanity and make judgments or appraisals of humanity. And so for those of us who were aliens, we often got what I would call the Spock speech. We would get a, we'd get a speech where the writers are, are making comments about human characteristics, uh, human values uh, that only an outsider, an alien, can make. I heard one very funny story. You were on the set in 94 during the earthquake. About the earthquake, sure. On that particular morning, my calls were usually about 5 o'clock in the morning because my makeup took two hours to apply every day. And so at 7 o'clock when the camera crew was ready, I was ready to go at 7. So I would come in at 5. So this particular morning, and I don't know why, but they had called me in I believe at four instead of at five. My makeup artist who applied my prosthetic makeup, her name is Karen Westerfield, she had put my prosthetics on. She she had glued my rubber head on. Your dome. My dome and, and the face mask as well because there was two parts, the dome and the face mask. Mm-hmm. And the earthquake came. Actually, we weren't shook up that much because we were in a makeup trailer. And although the the city shook, we were you know we were sort of stabilized by by the you're on, you're on shocks. Yeah, but we found out pretty quickly what had happened. I mean, for me, the the most telling thing that I remember was walking outside. It was still dark, and looking up at the sky, and seeing stars, seeing stars in the ah, sky. No light. No light. And I and I went whoa. That was the most uh, a telling thing of, of that morning except for what I'm about to tell you. And at that time, we didn't have cell phones, although somebody had something like a cell phone. Yeah, a mobile phone. That's it, a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Big he, he called his wife. His house hadn't been shook very much. I finally got in touch with my wife and found out here in the valley that we had been rocked quite a bit. Um, the perimeter walls around the property had come down. The French doors had all been blown open. The dogs had gone frantic. And uh, she was in rather shook up state and I said well I'll be home as soon as I can so I went to the AD and said I'm going home now understand I'm still in my dome and face mask and and I'm not going to wait to have it taken off because it takes an hour to unglue that and I didn't want to wait an hour and my makeup lady Karen luckily for me lived about two miles from where I live now and I said to Karen, come over to my house with your materials, you know, and, and, and take it off after you've checked your house and, and your family and everything. So we agreed on that. The AD actually said to me, you can't leave. My contractual, my contract with Paramount said that I could not leave this, the lot in makeup. Oh. That that was forbidden. And he said, so you can't leave. And I said, well, I'm not waiting around to have this taken off. I'm I'm taking off now, and he gave me an argument for about thirty seconds or so. It's his job. That's his job, and he fulfilled his job. And I said, you know, screw you, I'm I'm going. <laughs> and he said, fine, I'll see you tomorrow. So, I'm driving from the Paramount lot to my home in the valley, and because of the earthquake, because I remembered in our last major earthquake in Los Angeles, one particular area of freeway had had fallen down. So I took the local roads. And the people in Los Angeles were incredibly gracious that morning. There were no street lights working, no traffic lights working. 
And so people were very kind about letting the person on the right go through the intersection first. I got to an intersection and understand I've got my Ferengi prosthetics on. The other thing I should tell you is I can't drive without glasses. And so in order to drive, I'm holding my glasses out in front of my <laughs> face because I can't get them around the head. That's right. impossible. So I've got my glasses out in front of me. I'm, I'm at an intersection. There's a gentleman in a, in a large truck uh, facing me. And what you can't <laughs> see on the radio, but for Phil and Ted's amusement, I will show them what this guy looked like, which was like this. <laughs> oh, that was good. His his oh. his mouth was agape. His eyes, eyes were, were disbelieving bugged, and right? bugged out. And then all of a sudden, he very graciously just waved me through the intersection. <laughs> just, though it wasn't my turn, he just waved me through the intersection. And for the rest of the week, actually, I kept an eye on the Inquirer to see if anybody <laughs> reported any aliens oh, during the earthquake. But there was no stories. You know, that reminds me of the scene from Close Encounters where Dreyfus is uh, sitting in his truck and uh, a UFO gets behind him with those bright lights and he, he just waves you, waves you, oh, go on. <laughs> go on, go on. And it, it goes up and over the car. Wow. So it, it was, a, you know, and I came home. Um, and the nice thing was, although my wife had seen me many times on the lot with the makeup on, many times, when I came home with the makeup, uh, she started to laugh, which was a very pleasant sound considering what the morning had done to her. And ironically, we had had tickets the night before to go see Bill Irwin in a oh, show. Love Bill, love him. And because my call was so early, four o'clock in the morning, I said to, to my wife, listen, take somebody else, go. And I'm going to sleep in the master bedroom and you, when you come in, don't wake me up. Go into the guest bedroom and go to sleep. So I got up, went to work. She was in the guest bedroom. She was woken up by the earthquake. When the earthquake happened, the TV cabinet had tipped over. The TV and the cabinet had fallen on the bed in the master bedroom. Ah. Oh. So if she had slept there, she might have been crushed or at oh. least hurt. Yeah. Wow. And luckily for us, she had been in the guest bedroom where there was no such contraption, and um, and she escaped injury that way. So that was very nice. Here we have a, a major earthquake, and yet you're told you can't leave because you may shatter the illusion, and that somehow <laughs> supersedes your, your actual life. Yes. This is a rule at Disney World. Oh, for the characters? The characters that walk around. As you can imagine, in the summer in Orlando, those outfits they wear Hard. are stifling. No one right? knows better than I. And yeah. the rule is, if you collapse from heat exhaustion, you are not allowed to be revived. They can't take your head off. They have to uh, drag you, and they have a series of trapdoors all around the park to immediately evacuate these people, put them behind walls, and then take the helmet off. They're not allowed to do it in front of the guests. Off with his head. <laughs> You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest, Armin Shimmerman. We'll be right back. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. Tell your friends about the Sexy Boomer Show and help us build our audience. To be notified when a new episode is posted, press the subscribe button in your podcast player. 
And if you'd like to toss something in the tip jar to help our habit, look for the donate button on our website, sexyboomershow.com. And for 20 bucks, we'll send you a swell Sexy Boomer Show bumper sticker that will help you get lucky. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, actor, author, and professor, Armin Shimmerman. Now, I want to connect some things in your life. Not only are you well known for doing this wonderful alien comic, culturally changing character. Thank you, Phil. You are uh, a Shakespearean scholar and a teacher, a professor, associate professor. Associate professor. Right. USC. Still working at it. Keep practicing. Thank you. And an author. And in fact, I have in my hand your latest work, Illyria, book one, and it's called Betrayal of Angels. Could you tell me a little bit about this series? Sure. So I've been writing novels for a very long time. In fact, long before I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be a writer. Aha. And uh, it's always been in the back of my mind, but I was seduced by the dark side of the force and became an actor. But it didn't stop me from wanting to write. And I have written another trilogy, which was a science fiction trilogy, which was easy to do because I was a science fiction actor. Mm -hmm. But in that trilogy, uh, which is called the Merchant Prince Trilogy. I wrote about a, a historical character named Dr. John Dee, a very famous or infamous person from Elizabethan England. But that character in the Merchant Prince series was more about my character from Deep Space Nine than it was about John Dee, uh, although we called him John Dee, but it was more Quark than it was John Dee. And I sort of promised the spirit of John Dee that one day I would write a series of novels about the historical John Dee and keep Quark out of it. So this prompted this idea that I had of John Dee being sort of a Sherlock Holmes type, solving a problem that Elizabethan England was going through, which was the, the bitter rivalry or, or um, hatred, really, between the Protestants and the Catholics of Elizabethan times, not only in England but in Europe as well. England, of course, at that time was a Protestant country, or at least the national religion was Protestant, but there were many, many, many Catholics, especially in the north of England, who, who, who had to secretly go to Mass. Mass was forbidden uh, pretty much after 1570 when the Pope excommunicated Queen Elizabeth. And Shakespeare, William Shakespeare's father, was it purported to be a secret right. Catholic. Right, and it is one of the great mysteries that someday will be solved. Was Shakespeare a practicing Catholic because his father was a Catholic? Or was he a practicing Protestant? Because the only way you could get work uh. in the court was to be a Protestant. If you were Catholic, they would not give you work. That was forbidden. So, so my novel is about testing the loyalty of a particular count in the English Channel. Uh, England has jurisdiction over several islands in the English Channel. Jersey, for instance, or um, White. Isle of Wight. Isle of Wight, and, and there are a couple of others. And, and in my imagination, I saw one of these islands as a halfway house or an um, underground station to bring priests into England to worship Mass. To Mass. And this was happening. This is historically true. Wow. But not about the island. But priests were smuggled into England so that Mass could be worshipped. 
so I started writing this actually while I was in my trailer of Deep Space Nine. And I decided in, in this novel also to bring in a very young William Shakespeare uh, at the age of 16 as a sort of a sidekick. But as hmm. things would have it, um, although Dee was always meant to be the lead character, and he is, yes. um, Shakespeare's character grew and grew and grew and became almost an equal, a co-equal in the books as well. Because we do not know how Shakespeare became Shakespeare. That's right. How did this young kid from a small town in Warwickshire, how did this kid get to be so knowledgeable and so good a writer without a university education, with, without any real education at all? How did that happen? We don't know how that happened. So my premise is John Dee, among the many things that he did, had the largest library in England at the time. He was a master educator. He was a master mathematician. Like Erasmus, people would come from all over Europe to visit him to learn more about what he knew. So I have them linked up so that Shakespeare can learn from this, this incredible scholar. And it's from his relationship with John Dee that it becomes the writer that we all know him to be. So they're trying to solve the mystery of, on the island, who is the person protecting these, uh, what's called seminary priests, uh, and getting them into England secretly. My premise is that Dee is educating Will Shakespeare while both of them are trying to solve the riddle of this crime. And the island, by the way, is not called Jersey, and it's not called the Isle of Wight or any of the other islands, or, but rather is called Illyria, which is the island that Shakespeare uses in Twelfth Night. And, and I combined a lot of history with the characters of Twelfth Night. So it's, it's both a historical novel and a fantastical novel at the same time. Dee is, is educating Shakespeare into literature, into writing, into uh, uh, literary allusions. History. History, rhetoric, all the things that was taught at university, uh, Dee is teaching Will and he is becoming a better writer as he studies. In the meantime, he gets a, an occupation with the count that they're investigating, uh, whose name is Orsino, Count Orsino. Yeah, okay, Orsino. Um, uh, and he becomes Orsino's court poet while he's in Illyria. Now, so when I sold the novel, and the, and the publishers were very nice about buying it, it, they made the mistake of not asking me when they bought it, how many words do you have? They eventually did ask me that after all the paperwork was signed, and when they realized how large the novel was, they insisted that it wasn't one book, it was three books. And the deal we made was that each book would come out each November. Uh, on November the 5th, which happens to be uh, my birthday. Oh, um, nice coincidence. And uh, Guy Fawkes Day, which is a holiday in England. Um, <laughs> so um, the first book is out. Betrayal of Angels is out. The second book, uh, which I haven't got a title for, you know, book two, will uh, come out next November. Call it Proctor's Revenge. Okay, Proctor's Revenge it is. And the third one, you know, will be uh, Ted's, Ted's Happiness. Oh, great. <laughs> As you said, this is a story about not-so-merry old England. Yeah, because we've heard that expression, merry old England, and the, and the, the truth is it wasn't so merry. The average age of a Londoner in Shakespeare's time was about 22. People died from the plague. People died from accidents. People died from 
any disease. It didn't have to be from the plague. Um, people were killed off by the government or by each other. Uh, it, it, it wasn't pleasant. And, and certainly people on the lower ends of society were starving, um, were mutilated. It, it wasn't pleasant. They drank a lot. I mean, the, the amount of mead that was drunk. Well, water was dangerous. Water was days. dangerous. Uh, everything was dangerous about life at that time. Uh, England was a backward, backwater country compared to most of Europe. And they were coming out of that, but it was not a pleasant place to be. And, and Shakespeare took his life in his hands, literally, hmm. to go from Warwickshire to London. And, uh, and probably why he never visited his wife that often, because it was a dangerous journey back and forth. Because yeah, hmm. even if you didn't die of, of disease or anything, you could be robbed, a you could be murdered, man, absolutely. Sure. So as a professor of Shakespeare, is it an opportunity to ask you, for people who aren't familiar with Shakespeare, someone who would like to learn a little more, would like to find an in. Do you have a particular way of doing that for students? I do, actually. Um, usually what's off-putting about Shakespeare is the language. And the truth of the matter is, most of the language is current language. You know, people say, oh, it's Old English. It's not Old English. Old English is, when that opera with Yeshua, and that's actually not Old English, that's Middle English. Chaucer. Chaucer, right. Um, so it's really modern English. What's off-putting is, is the way the words are put together. The modern words are put together. It's in a style that we are not familiar with, mainly because it's written in a rhetorical style. And rhetoric, although still taught, but not very much, was absolutely what was taught through the Middle Ages up until, I would say, the beginning of the 20th century. And in America, for whatever reason, they really stopped teaching that as fundamental English. But when you begin to recognize the rules of rhetoric, when you, why, when you understand why these words are put together in the manner that they're put together, and begin to accept that as part of, of your, as your understanding of English, then the language becomes exponentially clearer. Now, there's still going to be some trade terms that we may not be familiar with. If this was a mercantile society. It was a, it was a society that, uh, that made its money off of shipping. So there's a lot of shipping terms and a lot of horse wrangling terms and a, and a lot of terms that were everyday usages to people who lived in that time, but aren't necessarily so to us today. Many of them still are used, but, but we're not as familiar with those crafts as these people were. Um, and also sometimes words have slightly changed a tiny bit. One of the ones that I'm particularly fond of is the word F-R-O-M, from. Um, in Shakespeare, uh, it, for us, from means from, as we understand it. Moving away from. Yes, moving, but even more so in Shakespeare. Actually, that's the very definition that Shakespeare would use, uh -huh. Phil. There's a great sense of divorce in the word from. So my example to my class usually is, I can tell you that I am from New Jersey, and you'll understand that. But if Shakespeare wrote that line, he would expect his actor to say, in this sort of way, I am from New Jersey. There's a great sense of divorce, that never going ah. back. This is from any understanding. If you lived in New Jersey, you would want to be from New Jersey. And I am from, from New, New Jersey. Jersey. 
So, uh, and there are other words that we use all the time, but we never think about. For instance, the figures of speech. Why are they called figures of speech? And this is actually goes back to rhetoric. The hundreds of ways to put words together all have their own individual Greek name. And those, that collection of Greek names for ways to put words together are all called figures. Go figure. Hmm. Well, that's a different figure. Oh. The thing that, that is essential, unfortunately, for those who are, who are thinking about learning more about Shakespeare is to have a very good dictionary because you, you need, sometimes you are misled by a word that you think you know, you absolutely know you know, but the word has changed its meaning or has a double meaning. I mean, look at the word Czech, for instance. Um, Czech can mean someone from Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Czech can mean give me the bill at the end of a meal. Czech can be check out the woman who just walked by. The figure on that woman. That's right. Uh, so um, speak. Uh, and I'm sure there are three or four other checks. Yeah, you can write a check. Too. You can write a check. Exactly. So th they're check off the list. Check off the list. The, it goes on and on. So oftentimes we have a limited awareness of what a word means when it it means what it means today, but it also has another meaning. Mm -hmm. For instance, again. My favorite example is want. For us, want means I desire something. I, I want a coffee. Um, I desire a coffee. But if Shakespeare writes, I want a coffee, he means there's no coffee here. Right. We're lacking. I need a coffee. There's in no in coffee. want of a nail, the, 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 war, the was war was lost. lost. We'd be interesting for people who are getting into Shakespeare to maybe read an electronic version of it where you can tap on a word and get an instantaneous explanation. You know what? If the instantaneous translation includes some archaic definitions yeah. or uh, or a sufficient amount of, def of definitions, yeah. I think that's a very good idea. Well, listen, in, in Shakespearean's time, they would have a monk sitting at your feet while you Not were reading. Not a monk. Catholics are forbidden in England. Oh, so it would be... Uh, a what, what's the word for a scribe a scribe a scrivener right and you tap him on the head that's right and he tells you what the word means he tell you the different meanings of the word yeah for someone who would know nothing about Shakespeare but is curious why is it worth the effort great okay for two reasons first and foremost primary reason very few writers have ever succeeded in explaining the human condition as well as Shakespeare has. And he's able to do it in a few words. Just a couple of words put together suddenly crystallize exactly a human emotion, a human response to things. And, and the way he puts words together are so galvanizing that, that it just gives you an epiphany about your own humanity. To be or not to be? That is the question. And that, by the way, is a figure called um, uh, antithesis. And right. it's because it's an opposite. If, I, if you recognize this as the figure of antithesis, oh, it's, it's an opposite. To be, or the opposite, not, not to, to be. be. And that's the rhetorical figure of antithesis. And so, oh, not only do you recognize that, but you understand why he wrote it the way he wrote it. He's using that figure to, to write that line. And antithesis is absolutely Shakespeare's favorite figure of rhetoric. He uses it constantly. And, and as long as you begin to see the, yes. the relationship, the tension between these opposites, you have a better understanding and a better appreciation. You can still understand, but you have a better appreciation of what's being said. So if you say, I want to be, you're saying both I need to be and I don't think I can be. Exactly. Precisely. <laughs>
what works would you recommend as a starter? My novel. <laughs> Illyria. Illyria. And the reason is, and I'm slightly being facetious, but, but uh, it gives you a very good understanding of the history of the times. And that, too, is part and parcel of the, of the misunderstanding of people. Because if people don't understand what was happening at that time, they can't relate to the, to the characters as well. Because Shakespeare's learning about rhetoric from John Dee, you'll get some principles of rhetoric in my novel as well. No one really knows how William Shakespeare learned what he learned to be able to write this. We don't know. He didn't go to university. He was always um, in conflict with the with the writers, and there were many wonderful dramatists at the time. Shakespeare is not the only dramatist of the time. There were really great writers at that time, but they're all overshadowed by, by Shakespeare. Was it like Johnson and Bacon? Yeah, Johnson and Bacon and uh, Nash, uh, uh, Green. Yeah, and they all kind of hung out. They knew one another. They tried to kill one another. Exactly, <laughs> and they, they were in bitter feuds with each other. And, and all of them, except Shakespeare, all went to university, and they all studied wow. rhetoric, and they all competed as writers do today, for the, for the top spot in the literary world. Was he particularly resented because he didn't have an education? Yes. Green uh, you know, wrote a, a great, one of the last things he wrote was this uh, treatise on, on this upstart crow uh, that he called Will Shakespeare, because he was an upstart. He didn't go to university, and he thought himself better than the university wits who thought that they were at the top of the pack. Um, and history has proven that Green was wrong, and, and Shakespeare was the one that we all admire. My favorite description of Shakespeare, for those who may not really want to see a play, is blah, 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 sword fight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, Shakespeare was aware of that. Yes. Uh, there's very few plays that he doesn't have a sword fight because they were, they were appreciated. People wanted to see the sword fights. And most actors at that time, like you and I, Phil, um, were very good swordsmen. So if you were in a sword fight and you killed someone, normally you'd go to jail for that. But in Elizabethan times, if you could prove to the judge that you could read and write, you were let off. Really? Wow. That you could read or write? What if you killed somebody that could read and write? Oh, they'd write it off. They'd write. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Oh, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> you were going to say it. I was going to say it. <laughs> what was Shakespeare like personally? Hard to know. He was very reclusive. He certainly had affairs. One can assume that. Um, he didn't get into trouble. All the playwrights that I've been referring to, they all got into trouble. They all got hauled before court. Shakespeare never did. Um, it may be, in my humble opinion, and it's very humble, that because he was a secret Catholic, um, he, he kept his nose clean so that uh, he would not get into trouble. Mm -hmm. But there's relatively little known about Shakespeare because he did keep his nose clean, he didn't get into trouble. We know that he lived with a French couple on Silver Street while he was writing the plays, and he was involved in a lawsuit with them, but he wasn't the person involved in the lawsuit, he was merely a witness. Um, but, but there's relatively little known about him. We do know that he, you know, that he was not only a, a playwright, but also an actor, and there is a rumor uh, that he played all the the kings that weren't the title role. So all the plays that have kings in them but are not the title role, the rumor is that Shakespeare played those parts. Wow. 
did he speak truth to power and as a result have a no vote? he didn't speak truth to power so he wasn't he didn't get into trouble with the no. powers of be. there's 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 relatively little politics in his place there's politics but not controversial politics uh, he, he pretty much stayed true to the tutors that hired him and uh, kept his nose clean the other playwrights often did get very political and got hauled into court or brought both courts, whether it was legal court or, or uh, the Queen's court, uh, in order to get their, um, you know, their comeuppance for doing what they did. How did he live out his life? Well, most of the time he lived in London. When he retired, a very rich man, hmm. he returned to, to Stratford, Stratford, where uh, he got into one or two lawsuits because um, he was part of a consortium that was buying out the common land, taking common land away from the peasants, away from the people who couldn't afford it, were using that common land to put their sheep on, their cattle on, um, and and he was ta- he was part of a consortium that was 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 disappearing that land. Um, hmm. huh. He he finally pretty much died of a cold. Uh, he caught cold and died. Caught a cold. How old how old was he? He was forty eight, I believe, when he died. That's a pretty pretty good long life. But he also developed writer's cramp, I understand. He, he did, he did. When you look at his signatures he, in the later Well, years. right, now talking about his signatures. Imagine that. Th- there's no such thing as a spelling B in Shakespeare's time. What do I mean by that? There's no definitive script for Shakespeare because we're never sure really about what words are, are correct. For instance, Americans tend to say, uh, oh, that there's too, too solid flesh when Melthon resolve itself unto a Jew. Whereas the English tend to say, um, oh, that there's too, too sullied flesh would melt on so. And the reason is there is there is no correct spelling of words in this period of time. It, you can correct. spell a word any way you like. So going to Phil's comment, in the uh I th- I'm I don't think this number's right, but in the dozen or so examples of Shakespeare's spelling of his own name on legal documents, in six of those, he spells it differently. He spells his own name differently. And in fact, in my novel, I do not spell Shakespeare, S-H-A-K-E-S-P-E-A-R-E, as it is normally written, but I, I, I take one of the spellings, other spellings, S-H-A-K-E-S-P-A-R, no E, no E at the end. Um, saves on room in the novel, and, uh, <laughs> and is, is, an, is an acknowledgement of the fact that spelling was up for grabs. At that now, point. by the way, the Fireside Theater. Yeah, that's right. The the, yeah, play. we wrote a Shakespeare's Lost Comedy, right? right? But, but we always thought of him as being Shakespeare, yeah. which is what you kind of are, are playing with. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it was almost as if back then, before spelling was standardized, uh, writing was almost in dialect. Yes, exactly. It's a good, good way, way to look, put yeah. it. It was in dialect. Yeah. And, and that is why, if you look at the first folio um, of, for Macbeth, um, you'll see that it's it's not written murder, M-U-R-D-E-R. It's murther. Murther, because somebody in the in the printing process must have had a Northern English accent, and they wrote it the way it they sounded. Heard it. They said it, murther. 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 You murther, murther. Murthy. Interesting. What for you personally makes him relevant six centuries later? His appreciation of the human existence, and that never really changes. History can change, cultures can change, but the human condition is pretty much the same. We love, we hate, we desire, we need to eat, uh, we need to propagate. All the things that are essential to humanity 
he deals with and in such a beautiful way and and in such an educated way um it's what makes him appreciated by people for all these countless years and to take it back to what you're saying about Star Trek, he he was very much involved in the the friction between people and the frictions and tensions in society and history. You know exactly, Philip. Well put. I'm put that in my next class. That's very oh, good. Good, good, good. It's timeless. Yeah. And um, and again, the beauty of of his of his word construction is just glorious. If we like poetry at all, not that he's always a poet. He's not. And a lot of times he says things that are stupid as well. So it's not like he's brilliant all the time. Well, what's wrong with that? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, well, you know. Oh, the groundlings like it. Exactly. Sometimes the jokes are so bad, Phil, not even you can make them funny. Firesign Theater did, but it took four of us. Yeah, but you wrote your own lines. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of his work is just, for an actor anyway, as well as a reader, but for an actor, they're just delicious words to speak. And to get into his speeches, and to get into the scenes, and to to kind of uh, uncover the wit and and uh, uh, rhetoric, you know, the, the the give and take of what he's doing makes it such a joy. Now you've done about a third of Shakespeare's tone. Well, I think I'm a little closer to half. You've done almost half. Uh, half half the plays. And how many are there? Uh, that's debatable. No, that is debatable. Debatable, but uh, I think 36 or 37. Your job as a professor at USC, how many of the students look at Shakespeare as medicine as opposed to uh, uh, candy? <laughs> well, I'm going to brag here. That's a, Thank you for that question. It's a wonderful question. Most of my students tell me, uh, after they've finished my class and have gone on for another year or so, that it was all medicine. They all thought it was medicine when they came in. And certainly my first class is is a lot of medicine because I'm <laughs> introducing them to a language they've never heard before which is the language of rhetoric and I'm using a lot of the Greek terms uh, for figures that they've never heard of before but I will say that I've gotten a ton of feedback from a, a good majority of my students that it became their favorite class while they went to USC oh, um, because I think they discovered something they didn't know about before and 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 the discovery of learning became delicious to them. You've been using the word rhetoric a lot when you're talking about Shakespeare's writing. And this day and age that we're dealing with politically in the United States, rhetoric is... A bad word. Has become a bad word. So what is the relevance of the word rhetoric in terms of Shakespeare and today? Great, great question. Let me answer, that's a two-part question for yes. me. So the first part, what is rhetoric? Rhetoric is the art and science of putting words together to say something meaningful and memorable. For those of us of our generation, we remember Kennedy's uh, ask not what uh, your country can do for you, but what ask you can you do for your country. Your country yeah. Right, and that's a very rhetorical sentence. It's put together very rhetorically. Words are repeated, um, and, and, and repetition is part of rhetoric. So it becomes memorable. It's not only do we, do we think it's wise, but we can repeat it because it's easy to repeat because of the mnemonic of the repeated words. Mm -hmm. That was something that all knowledgeable people, all people who wanted to write, had to understand in order to write up until about the 20th century. Hmm. Everybody learned that. How does it deal with, with our 21st century problems here in this country? Well, first of all, they've made rhetoric into a bad term because rhetoric in the 20th century became something, you were sold something you didn't want. 
that was the definition of rhetoric. Disingenuous. Yes, it was disingenuous that they, they, they spoke so well about a product that you had to buy it, and then when you bought it, you found out it was a dud. <laughs> okay. Rhetoric has also come to mean in the 21st century that, that a, a particular topic is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated ad infinitum. Fraud, 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 right. fraud. Right, so that either it takes on a great deal of meaning or a buzzword, it becomes a buzzword. Fake news. Or f- fake news. Or all value to that word is lost mm-hmm. because it's repeated so many times. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the original purposes of rhetoric. Rhetoric was to make you remember it and to value it. Hmm. It is interesting that rhetoric has become more of a negative power in, in our modern vernaculars, hasn't it? You know, but the, the politicians usurped it. Yes, and one of the reasons why Shakespeare, it's hard to, to, really, Shakespeare was never intended to be read. It was always intended to be performed. Very good point. So when you read it, without the actors bringing life to those characters, it's very dull. It, it's, it's, it's very dull without actors. The second part of the problem is, unlike people like Phil, a lot of times actors don't know what they're saying when they're saying Shakespeare. They don't understand the principles of rhetoric. They don't understand that want means loss and not desire. And so you, as an audience member, are listening to a Shakespeare play, watching a Shakespeare play, and, and you're confused and you feel stupid because you don't understand what they're saying. The fault is not in you, the audience. The fault is in the actors, that they have not done their homework sufficiently so that they can communicate what's on the page to the audience. There's nothing better for me as an actor to hear an audience member come up to me after a Shakespeare show or a classical show and say, that's the clearest I've ever understood that. And you know what? It was always clear. It's just that the communicators, the actors, hadn't done their work in order to make it clear to you. That's right. The plays written in the middle of his career are enormously accessible. The the plays written in the beginning of his career are usually very funny and very accessible. The plays written at the end of his career are, are harder to get into. Why? Like a musician, you start out learning the chords, the simple mm-hmm. chords, the mm-hmm. simple keys. And as a beginning playwright, he's writing rather simple rhetoric, understandable rhetoric. Um, um, the language is, is relatively easy. As a musician progresses and he becomes or she becomes infatuated with jazz, they begin to, to syncopate. They begin to play with the music. Improvise. They improvise. They begin to not be worried about the forms, but decide to, to take liberties with the forms. And that's what he starts to do with language in his later plays. So plays like The Tempest, Winter's Tale, those are difficult plays to to understand because now he's rifting on, Eng- on the English <laughs> language and it's not as easy as Hamlet or, or Comedy of Errors uh, because he's now having fun with language which he wasn't doing before. Shakespeare wrote for it to be delivered, not read. Yes, it's Absolutely. never, was never. never. It, 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 the plays were, were printed after he died. That's he right. never made any effort to have it. And in fact, the plays didn't belong to Shakespeare. Once he wrote them, they belonged to the theater. They belonged to the theater that he worked for. The for King's, the King's Men or the Queen's Men. Huh. Absolutely. And in fact, if a printer 
came into the audience or a printer's boy or somebody and he surreptitiously wrote down all the lines and printed that, that play belonged to the printer, not to the theater and certainly not to Shakespeare. Wow. And that's why we have some versions of Shakespeare's play, they're called the bad quartos, mm -hmm. that, that were, were surreptitiously taken down and, and they're not close to the, to the first folio at all and because they were, they were just written as quick as that boy could write uh, down the lines. It's also my supposition that the great comics, the jesters in his company, would improvise. I will go further with that, and I'm very proud of this. There were two main comics in Shakespeare's. They didn't work at the same time. Uh, one replaced the other. The first one was Will Kemp, and he did exactly what you Will said. Will Kemp. Will Kemp uh, uh, improvised all the time, and I think Shakespeare was very happy to see the back of Will Kemp when, <laughs> when, when Will Kemp left the company. Now, what I love about the fact was the comic character who replaced Will Kemp was a man named, ready for this, Robert Armin. <laughs> and he was very much a linguistic comic character, and he's the one that created all the great fools, the fool in King Lear, the ah. fool in Twelfth Night. Uh, he's not a comic, he's not a pratfall type of actor, he's a linguistic. He's, as, he, as Festy says in Twelfth Night, he is a corrupter of words, and um, quite brilliant. But, but all of them, all of them, had some comedic virtues, absolutely. Will Camp, I wonder if we get camping it up from that. From that. You know, that's a very... Could be, right? So the takeaway is that if you want to get into Shakespeare, go see a good production. Yes. Or a good movie. Go see a good movie, because all the difficult stuff is usually cut out of the movie. See anything with a number. Richard III, Henry V. Those are all middle plays, because uh, he was writing histories uh, a lot in his middle years. He was interested in the conflict uh, in, in English politics without getting too political. But I think a movie's a very good idea because you're startled by the, the, the magnificence of the costumes. Any particular movie you'd recommend? Henry V is a tremendously inspiring movie. Tremendously inspiring. And easy to understand. Easy, easy to, to understand. Because there's a lot of sword fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Armin, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been uh, a delightful being in your backyard. Thank you. Our backyard is better off for your having been here. <laughs> no, thank thank you. you so much, Armin. Another fascinating conversation. Yeah, and I didn't have to learn any lines. I really love barging into people's homes and interviewing them. We have to continue doing this. On the next edition of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm the other guy. Stay tuned. Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Armin Shimmerman. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.